We're continuing our look this morning at 1 Samuel and looking at the beginning of the kingdom of Israel, how they moved from having no king to having a king. And last week we saw that Samuel, the leader of God's people at that time, who came and privately anointed Saul as king over the people. And Saul kept it quiet. But today we see a public anointing, a recognition, a coronation that Saul is the king. And we also see that Saul gets his first chance to really act as king over, his, over Israel. But through it all, we see that God shows himself as the real king, as the one who truly has the power to save and rule over his people. So if you would and have your Bibles in front of you or want to grab a pew Bible, we're going to be looking in 1 Samuel chapter 10 this morning, beginning in verse 17. Picking up where we left off last week with the lost donkeys, and we're beginning in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, verse 17. We'll be reading through the end of chapter 11, that is verse 15. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord. The God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you. 
that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let us pray. O holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us even today. That you have preserved your scripture for us pure and intact, inspired by your spirit. So that you speak to not only the people of that day, but the people of our day. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear and minds and hearts to understand and to be changed. Use me in spite of my own sin, my weaknesses, that the word may go forth and that we would hear it, and that we would be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning in our passage, we have the continuation of what we have seen earlier with Saul and the beginnings of the kingdom. And what we are looking at, and the big idea I want us to see, is that we can tend as sinners to put too much stock in men or women, whether it's ourselves or others, And when we do that, we reject the truth that God alone has the power to save, that we put too much of our hope 
in men and women and not enough in God. And so in our passage today, we see the failure of looking to men and women for salvation. And then we see the wisdom and how we are to trust that the mighty God alone can save even if he does so through his servants. And so at the beginning of our passage, we meet Samuel. And he's calling everybody together for the super exciting celebration of the beginning of the monarchy. It's like an inauguration or an election. It's a time to celebrate, to throw parties, to release balloons and sing songs. Not for Samuel. Samuel is compelled by God's word to share with them how this celebratory occasion is in fact a rejection of God. He says this, Today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. You have rejected your God who saves you. That's really the emphasis of the passage. Salvation and where it comes from. The people rejected God by looking to a human king to save them. And so the writer of 1 Samuel shows us the stupidity, the foolishness of looking to human beings, men or women, to save us. That God alone is mighty to save. And so we see two examples of weakness in men that we would seek to follow. And what happens when men like that rule? First, we meet the cowardice or if you want to be nice, the timidity of Saul. When he is chosen as king, Saul is nowhere to be found. They hear his name, they start looking for him, and can't find him, don't know where he is. God has to tell them he's over there hiding in the luggage, guys. And while we are not told exactly what Saul's motivation is for being absent, I think it's safe to assume that he is not playing hide-and-seek with the children. That in some way, he is cowering in the moment he is to be leading. And so he sees his own weakness and shows himself as weak when they are faced with a great challenge. And you're left wondering, wait, we're supposed to follow this coward here? Yeah, he's tall. He's good looking, obviously. But him? Really? And so that weakness shows itself in natural consequences that we see at the end of chapter 10. See, many people shout, long live the king. And some men of valor follow Saul home to be like his crew. The guys are going to be close to him. And yet we see some worthless fellows asking the question, how can this man save us? They are cynical of this coward They see Saul's weakness and they see no hope of salvation and they despise him. They likely expected a strong, powerful king who would courageously lead his people into battle and achieve victory for God's people. Their hopes for a king were high and Saul did not meet those high expectations. That same attitude of putting too much hope in men and women can be seen today. Many people today get completely distraught over bad leadership. You can look to politics. You can look to the workplace, to board members of an organization. You can even look to the church. By casting all of our hopes on men and women, we believe that humans could be the perfect leaders who will save us from our problems. Governmental problems, educational problems, or church problems. 
but our hopes are misplaced if they are placed only in men because men and women are weak, that no man has the power to save. And so we see that in Saul's example of weakness. But we also meet another leader, a second example of weakness who really isn't like Saul at all. We meet Nahash, or Nahash, the Ammonite. He is a strong leader. He besieges a city, forcing them into submission. He dictates the terms of surrender. And you're asking yourself, wait, so how's this guy weak? Nahash is morally weak. He is a cruel leader who toys with his foes, allowing them a sliver of hope before ultimately humiliating and disgracing them. Nahash is really an example of the worst impulses of humankind. And so you're left asking, why would anyone follow a cruel leader like this? But even morally weak leaders, when they are powerful, set the example for others who pursue power. You look at chapter 11, verse 12. After Saul is victorious over Nahash, people come to Samuel and ask, Hey, uh, where were those worthless fellows that said, shall this man save us? Bring him out here so we can kill him. We need to show people this is the Israelite monarchy and opposition is not tolerated. We don't want any cynics. We don't, we don't want anybody yelling about whether our king is good enough. We want people following and faithful to our king. See, they learned something from Nahash, a kind of cruelty that you're with us or you're dead. We see in these men a kind of moral weakness that is eager to punish and slow to forgive. Those attitudes also we can see in ourselves today. We too can latch on to strong leaders even if they're morally questionable. We can develop a desire to put opponents in their place rather than use power for the good of all people. We end up mocking and ridiculing those we feel superior to. We think that having power will save us, our people, our group, our ideals. But no man has the power to save. And so the weakness of men and women and their inability to save is because we have all rejected God and put too much hope in them. When we put our trust in men and then we realize they can't save us, we can become cynics like those worthless fellows. But when we put our trust in them and we think they can save us, we are deluded and will compromise like the followers of Nahash. Really, they're two sides of the same coin that we're putting too much trust in earthly men and women in our leaders. And this passage shows us only God can save. And part of the reason we see that so clearly is the problem is so big in this passage. As you look at it, you can start to think, okay, well, who could actually save us? So here's the problem. Israel is introduced as a people that has rejected God, that though they're excited for this new king, Samuel says, this was bad. You are all sinners and have rejected God. So that's a great starting point. And then they find their king who is cowering in luggage. Okay, that's not a great Not a great start of the monarchy. And then it's not unanimous approval, but we've got some mockers saying, who is this guy? And so we've got a really strong monarchy 
Not really. And then this opponent, who is a worthy movie villain, who is coming to conquer cities and gouge out eyes, who is cruel and ruthless. And who is he oppressing? Jabesh Gilead, who we heard about in our Old Testament reading. The very same town that Israel went and attacked because they, Jabesh Gilead, would not come and attack Gibeah. Israelites fighting Israelites, a deep history of civil war between these two cities. And so the people of Jabesh Gilead have to go to Gibeah, the very town they were supposed to fight, who people got mad at them over, in order to find help from the king. They have to move past old hard feelings and hope that someone can fix this. And so you're left thinking, who could solve this problem? Who could do that? Well, God provides an answer. I will save through my anointed king. Wait, that, the tall guy who's hiding, that one? Yeah, that one. Here's what Samuel says about him. Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Now, I think it is fair to think that Samuel is speaking about his height. That just in the previous verse, we were told how Saul is like this really tall guy, head and shoulders above the rest, that in that way there is none like him. But really his height never comes up again. They don't say, and Saul was able to look above the army and see Nahash. No, they don't say any of that. I think here is what the text is telling us as well. Why is there none like Saul among all the people? Because he is the one the Lord has chosen. It's not because he's courageous. It's not because he's tall. It's because God has said, this is my man, and I'm using him, warts and all. And so God uses Saul and shapes him in three different ways to be his man. First, Saul is guided by the word. Once they're done pulling him out of the baggage and gawking at his height and his handsomeness, Samuel has some stuff to say. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Let the word of God explain the rights and duties of a king. You have the right to take from the people in the form of taxes, but you also have the duty to care for the people. We had our new deacons installed today, and we said some vows that they have rights as officers, the right to receive our prayers and respect. And yet they also have duties to serve those in need among the congregation. Kings are like that too. He was to care for the people. And you notice, once Saul is done from his tired day with the oxen out in the field, he comes in, and you see his concern for the people. What's wrong? Why are people weeping? He sees now it is not a time to be scared. It is a time to care for the people. You see it again when he sends the cut-up pieces of the oxen. He says, such it will be done to your oxen. Notice he doesn't say, it will be done to you. He's not threatening the lives of his people. He cares about the lives of his people. And notice later when the people get really upset and saying, let's kill those guys who are angry at you. Saul says, no, they're not going to die today. Today the Lord worked victory. Saul could have saved just the people that were with him and killed all opposed to him. Those who wouldn't come to the battle and those who had 
criticized him earlier, but Saul is not a leader over his party, over his followers, but over all of Israel. And he is guided by the word to care for all of the people. The second way God shapes Saul, first, that he's guided by the word. Second, he is filled with the Spirit. After he hears the news of Jabesh Gilead, this is what we read. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Saul, who had been a coward, hiding from people who wanted to cheer for him, now hears about an enemy and is emboldened by the Spirit to respond on God's behalf. Nahash made a critical error, you can see. Nahash said, not only do I want to scoop out your eyes, I want to bring disgrace on all Israel. A little note to Bible bad guys. Things don't go well for people who say things like that. That God does not tolerate being disgraced or having his people disgraced for long. And so Saul musters the army and routs them in a morning. They are done by lunch with the Ammonites. He achieves victory for his people. Not because Saul is amazing, but because the Spirit worked through Saul. It was not man who saved, but God who saved. So God guides him by the word, fills him with the Spirit, and third, God shapes Saul by ensuring that he has a God-glorifying servant. In other words, even though Saul is king, he recognizes there is a higher throne than mine. We see that in verse 13. Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He's under no illusion that it was his power, his military strategy, or his charisma to win over his followers that led them to victory. It was the Lord who was mighty to save. So instead of throwing a celebration in his honor with songs to Saul and a a victory parade, he follows Samuel and they go to, to worship God. It says they go to renew the kingdom, which seems really weird. It's, it's pretty fresh and new. Like, I think the warranty is still good on Saul as king. We just anointed him. Why? What is there to renew? He still has that new king's smell. And yet they go and renew not the king, but the kingdom. Samuel is reminding people of their status under the rule of God through his servant Saul. And so instead of bringing gifts to the conquering king, they sacrifice offerings to their mighty God, the one who is truly mighty to save. See, he has shown himself as mighty to save. That's what Samuel said at the beginning of our passage. He redeemed you out of Israel, out of Egypt. He redeemed you from all your oppressors and saved you, and he has done it again. We as Christians know this too. He has saved us from our sin. He has saved us from the darkness of our selfish and sinful pride. He has saved us in so many ways. And our only hope is to trust in the God who has power to save. We see that in our New Testament reading as well from John 15. Jesus describes himself as the vine and that we are the branches. And we as the branches take power, take life from the vine. And if we are not connected to the vine, the branches will wither up and die. Jesus says, 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. If all of your hope is in people and not where they get their power from, there's no hope at all. That was God's warning to Israel here. You're demanding a king and trying to be successful without me. But you need me, even if I'm working through a king. You are rejecting me, and yet God, in his mercy, uses this king, showing victory, giving Saul power in such a way that it is clear he only was victorious because of God. Because apart from God, Saul could have done nothing. So we all need to hear this call to abide in Jesus. Because like Israel, we tend to put too much stock in men and women and their power to save us from whatever we face. It's all on this teacher of my child that's going to save my kid and teach them math. Or they're terrible, they'll never learn math because of it. Or it's all on this coach that's going to do for my kid what is most important. It's all on my doctors who are going to save me. It's all on my government who's going to save our nation. It's all on my church leaders who are going to lead us to fruitfulness. It's all on my family to provide meaning for me in my life. There are so many ways that we can put all of our hopes on men and women without recognizing God alone is the power to save us from whatever is our problem. And we set ourselves up for failure in that way when we put too much hope on them. Either we become cynical or we idolize those who we need to save us. And so what we need to do as God's people is renew the kingdom. Yeah, it seems like it was just renewed. We need to renew it every week, if not every day, remembering God alone is king. God alone is mighty to save. For when we trust in Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit. And we are humbled by God's love at the cross to give glory to him. And we are shown the word which guides us in life. And we start to realize that as we abide in Jesus, maybe God will use us for something. Maybe God will use even weak people like me and you to show how good and mighty our God is in this world. We are the branches here. He is the vine. Let us abide in him, for in him we can bear much fruit. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks that you empower us by the Spirit, that it is through Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is not through our actions or the actions of others. Yes, they may have led us in this path, but they were doing so by your power. Father, help us not to reject you by trusting in human leaders or in ourselves. May we see you, O God, as our king, as our only king, as a king who loves us and strengthens us and ultimately saves us through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.